The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. And another big welcome, everyone here today, especially anybody who's here for the first time. And um, back in July, I spent uh, the month talking about you know, do we need a refuge? And if so, what might that refuge be in our lives? And I talked about the refuge of presence. And in a way, you know, just to keep it simple, our only enemy, maybe, just maybe, is distractedness, inattentiveness, denial, being disconnected. And our path and our, you know, the, the interesting thing, I think this is true just generally in useful spiritual settings and teachings, the ends and the means need to be in alignment with each other. So if we are interested in being free, being peaceful, then it makes sense, right, that we would practice being free and peaceful with the conditions that are here now. Because that's, you know, that's how the practice becomes real, is that integration between the means and the aspiration. So when we talk about, you know, the refuge being awareness, this open, non-fearful, non-judging, no agenda awareness, there's a freedom in that awareness. And... Interestingly, when the Buddha, you know, in these uh, 16 steps in the Buddha's teachings on mindfulness of breathing, which we're kind of moving through as a way of understanding the path, because these 16 instructions encapsulate all of the Buddha's teachings. And it's just interesting how the first few instructions to establish awareness, mindful awareness, to the four, and simply to track the physicality of breathing in and breathing out. And although the Buddha's uh, discourse, it doesn't say this explicitly, there's, it's clearly um, woven in that there is a pleasure in being present. And the thing is, we're not going to cultivate this path of practice unless we sense that pleasure of being present. So we've been moving through these steps, and just so you know, I've been pasting in the chat here, for those of you online, the uh, document that has several articles, including these 16 steps. And for those of you in the room, you can't see the chat, but you can go to the online calendar. Just look for the Sunday morning program, and right there with the overview of what this program is, you'll see the link and you can get a copy of the articles, including the cheat sheet that I made with just a simple translation of these 16 instructions and a few of my notes helping you to understand how to work with them in practice. And a lot of what we're go- <clears throat> we have been learning this month and for, for a few more months about these 16 steps Although it 
might sound like it's just about my formal meditation time when I put aside 45 minutes in the morning or whatever we do, 30 minutes, 20 minutes, 10 minutes. But it's really meant these, like spiritual skill set is meant forever. Like I mentioned a few weeks ago, once we have a sense that being present, at least we're open to the possibility that being present, recognizing the present moment, oh yeah, this is being known, right? Once we have some intuitive sense that that feels right, that feels good, that's wholesome, it's even pleasant in an inner way, then of course we're going to want to persist at that. You know, we could just think of silly examples. If you spill a bag of M&Ms around your couch and you like M&Ms, you're going to persist in looking everywhere that those M&Ms might have rolled. Lift the cushion up, look under the couch. You're going to do all kinds of things to track every last one down. Now, that's a pretty gross example. Not gross in a bad sense, but, you know, it's just a basic pleasure of something sweet and a little crunchy. (laughs) I was so happy to find that they now have a kind of a more natural version of the M&Ms without artificial colors at the (laughs) co-op. If you can afford $10.99 a pound. (laughs) But, you know, who knows? That might be about what M&Ms cost per pound. Anyway. (laughs) So, if there's actually something that not only has some pleasure to it, but is onward leading, like it has a healing element that draws the mind along this healing, liberating path. Well, in a way that willingness to persist is almost like uh, an important feedback. Like if I'm not willing to persist at this, what am I missing? Like maybe the Buddha didn't know what he was talking about. And so I shouldn't be persisting at these practices. Or maybe I don't understand the practice well enough to recognize how it really has value, not theoretical value, but actual in-the-moment value that's onward leading. And that's the thing. There's a hook that helps us to unhook from the M&Ms and the interesting news articles, and the interesting conversations, and all the, forget all the bad worldly pleasures, but even all the nice, relatively wholesome worldly pleasures, like having a nice, you know, walk with a friend, or whatever it might be, a nice meal, a nice um, walk in nature, smelling the roses, right? There's nothing wrong with those pleasures. They're just limited. And the important thing is, there's a more resonant and healing pleasure. It's sort of like a different category of pleasure. And so in Buddhism, we have worldly pleasures, which we definitely want to get to know, because there's a kind of medicine to worldly pleasures. You know how it is, if we've had a really 
bad day and we come home and we do a deep relaxation or we take a nice bath or we make some nice soup for ourselves or our partner gives us a massage or that could be really good medicine. <laughs> like to help even things out, settle down, feel safe, help us release some of the grosser level of tension in our mind and bodies. But then the next day we pick up that same tension again in one version or another and on and on. So we need to use worldly pleasure skillfully and not unskillfully. Unskillfully means we'd use them thinking that they're an end in themselves. So we become addicted to nice massages or addicted to M&Ms, you know? And it's like, that's our go-to thing. Whenever there's a yucky emotion, a difficult time, I've got to get to the store and get M&Ms. Or I've got to go to this, my favorite healer and get my massage or, you know, whatever. And it's like that whole pattern itself becomes stressful. It doesn't really go anywhere. And of course, some of those patterns are more toxic than others, right? Like if getting addicted to heroin would be at the more toxic end of using sense pleasures to manage our life and just having a really healing routine when we come home after a stressful day, putting essential oils in our bathtub and, you know, listening to calming music and doing a little gardening and skillfully venting with a friend who doesn't whip up the aversion in our mind but just helps us ventilate the problems of the day, right? Now, that would be a skillful routine to help sort of take the edges off of the fact that it's not easy being a human being. But this whole other category of pleasure, it's really more, as I've been talking about these last couple of weeks, about what's not there than what is there. It isn't about the nice touch of the massage or the crunchy sweetness of an M&M or the this or the that. It's really noticing what the heart has shed or put down. So like when we take up the initial two or three instructions and we're just tracking that ordinary process of breathing in and out, what we're noticing isn't there, is we're noticing the mind that is normally obsessing over its sense experience, its thoughts, its imaginings, its sounds, its sights, its touches, its smells and tastes, and its reaction to all of those sense contacts. All of that stuff has fallen into the background because we've brought the meditation object into the foreground. And then we want to notice it's so nice. There's a pleasure there. It's the pleasure of my mind not being pushed around by the other sense experiences. Those sense experience, the eyes still see, the ears still hear, the thinking mind still can imagine and think, right? We haven't like shut those sensitivities off. They're just retreated. And so the mind is secluded. It's not the mind that's hyperly 
sensitive and responsive to every thought, every imagining, every sight, every sound, every touch, and having some kind of reaction or response to it. And that feels good. And that's the beginning of this thread of pleasure. It's this thread of awakening. I think I might have mentioned this a few weeks ago. You might have heard the word sutta or sutra, and once the sutra is the Sanskrit version and the Pali is sutta, and usually gets translated as discourse. But it's the same, you know, the Indo-European language, uh, so the ancient languages of uh, India and the languages of Europe, they're related. And so, like, the when you get the sutra, you know, when you've got a big gash and they got to sew it up, so that thread, that's really what these discourses, they're teachings that illuminate this pathway, this thread, and this thread is characterized by the pleasure of liberation, the pleasure of the heart realizing what it can let go of. And in a quick way of understanding what can the heart let go of, anything that the heart is clinging to can be let go of. Whatever the heart is fixed on, established in, holding to, that can be released. And the whole path, spiritual path, and it doesn't really matter, I mean, this is my opinion at least, whether you're a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew or a Buddhist or whatever, your kind of orientation, you'll see, if you look at your own spiritual tradition, you'll see, you'll be able to reinterpret it as a process of letting go of whatever the heart is clinging to, right? It's like what separates us, like in a more Christian terminology, what separates us from God? Well, our self-centered importance or anything I'm clinging to, right? And so all of these practices, it's just, you know, what is my... How am I operationalizing that process of realizing that the clinging, the holding is optional and the letting go feels right? And in the recognizing that letting go feels right, it builds the momentum. The mind becomes more and more curious about what I'm not letting go of. What what is this mind still fixed on, still established on, still holding to, still dependent on. And remember, like, I might be dependent on having a safe place to live, but I don't necessarily have to get rid of that safe place to live to learn to not be dependent on it. I just need to realize it's not dependable, because stuff happens. We had uh, the neighbors, the boulevard tree uh, across the street from us fell in that storm a couple weeks ago, right toward our house, just missed our house, but it did crush our Prius. It's okay. I mean, we, it needed some serious repairs, but it's, uh, it's still working, kind of. <laughs> Luckily, you know, by the time it hit the Prius, it was more of the top third of the tree, so it wasn't as heavy as the 
lower part of the tree, which would have just, because it's, you know, it was a good 12 inches, 14 inches in diameter, so it's a bigger tree. Um, but like, these things aren't dependable. We don't expect something like that to happen, but things like that happen, all kinds of stuff happens that we don't expect until it happens. People fall, you know, and then their health takes a dramatic turn because they had this accident. And then that can lead, that everything's onward leading to everything else, sets in motion other things. So what any kind of dependence on this sort of worldly existence is one, stressful, because we're always having to deal with the insecurity of it. It doesn't really work in the end. It just seems to work. But nor does it work to give up on that worldly security. You know, to think it doesn't matter to have a safe place to live or good food to eat. That's also a wrong understanding. Thinking that putting all my effort towards sort of worldly security is a setup for stress. Just like dismissing the value of being competent at doing the best we can in the insecure reality of our worldly existence, still doing the best I can to maintain health, to maintain healthy relationships, to have good food, a safe place to live, to take care of each other so we live in harmonious communities, to take responsibility for everyone's well-being. This is how we, you know, take care of ourselves. But even so, even when we do that, the world is imperfect and insecure and uncertain. Even if somehow humans learn to really take care of each other, really establish justice, fairness, we still have tsunamis, we still have insects and disease, right? We don't eliminate insecurity and vulnerability and uncertainty if we just started to behave with more kindness toward each other as nice as that would be, as useful as that would be. So that makes us interested in, well, is there another way? Which doesn't deny our worldly responsibilities. And that's why we practice right in our worldly life. We sit down as a worldly being with a body and a breath and a thinking mind. And we were interested, well, is there a taste of freedom when it's like this, you know, this worldly existence, and we follow that taste? That's the thread, the sutra, the sutta. Right? We're following, and because it's trustworthy, we're willing to go wherever it leads. <clears throat> and even though you might be, <clears throat> excuse me, the world's expert on the Buddhist teachings, <clears throat> we don't really know where it leads until we follow the thread. Knowing it conceptually, because we, the world expert on the Buddhist teachings or on spiritual teachings generally, you know, we could read about everybody's mystical experience that has ever been recorded 
in human history, it doesn't mean that we understand the mystical experience, right? We have to taste it, experience it ourselves. We have to follow that thread, and we can't follow the thread until we know what the thread is. And we find the thread, at least in the way the Buddha organizes his teachings and his path, we initially find the thread of that inner pleasure, let's call it, that spiritual pleasure. Generally in Buddhism, we call it the joy of renunciation. And that may seem weird, but even in that experience of, okay, I'm just going to be aware of this next in-breath. Forget the following out-breath. That's too far in advance. Just connect and sustain awareness through this one in-breath. Now let me just connect and sustain awareness through this out-breath. And let me do that in a relaxed way. Whatever the in-breath is like will be fine. Whatever the out-breath is like, it doesn't have to be like a good out-breath or a perfect out-breath. Any out-breath will do because it isn't the physicality of breathing out that matters. It's the recognizing the heart's capacity to let go of everything else. And that's how we discover this thread, the beginnings, it's the very beginning of the joy of letting go. Like, there is this diversity of sense experience, but I don't have to be attentive to it. And that feels good. Now you might, you know, we're going to always want to oversimplify. Oh, I get it. So the whole thing about spiritual happiness is not being connected to worldly experience. So that's that like stereotype of seeing, but I'm going to close my eyes. I'm going to plug my ears, you know, and I'm not going to think. And it's like, that's a sort of nihilistic approach to spiritual awakening. Like, if only I didn't exist, there wouldn't be a problem. That's the natural conclusion of that kind, that sort of avenue of thinking. And it's stressful because it's, we don't realize it at first, but it's an aversive approach. Life sucks, get me out of here. That's sort of the summation of that. So, It's not like the joy of renunciation. Initially, we are doing something kind of provocative. We are a sensitive being, but we're choosing to be sensitive to just one thing, to the exclusion of everything else. But remember, the third instruction is, the Buddha says, so while breathing in, please train yourselves to be aware of the whole body, experience the whole body. So we're, we're beginning to open up and the instructions going forward, so whatever that is, 14 out of the 16 instructions are much more inclusive of the experience of the heart, mind, and body. The body is there, but in more and more in the background. But we're not just using the touching at the, of the breath at the nostrils or feeling the belly rising and falling with the in and out breath and in a way suppressing everything else. That's just an initial move so we can recognize that this heart doesn't have to be dependent in its ordinary ways. It's kind of 
animal nature way, because we're an animal. So as an animal, like when we say, in a Buddhist sense, being an animal means we're talking about that part of the mind that's fixated on sense experience. What's being seen, what's being smelled, what's being tasted, what's being experienced through touch and sight, or sound, whatever I didn't say at the beginning, those five physical senses, right? So um, <clears throat> that's a lot of strong conditioning that we have, that animal nature, right? We don't have to be afraid of it, but we have to realize that the mind doesn't have to be governed by that conditioning. And the way we realize that is, I can bring my attention to one thing, I can feel the pleasure of just being aware of that one thing, the pleasure of that leads to that healing calm in the body, and that leads to the buoyant joy in the mind, in the heart. And this is where, like, in order for us to really get a sense of what we mean by the mind, it's so much easier to get to know the mind, the activity of the mind, when it's in a good space. When our mind is wild and angry and fearful, <clears throat> it's not easy to have an honest feeling and take, oh, my mind's like this now. Because we're captivated by our mental projection. So if I'm afraid, whatever that content is, I'm going to get identified. But if I do the work to establish this body-mind healing, and there's a resonant calm, like we ended with in our guided meditation, breathing in, sensing the embodied calm. Wherever we feel it, however we feel it in an embodied way, we keep that in mind. Not the pain in the body, but where the body feels good. And notice by keeping that in mind, there's a, a tendency for that good feeling to spread and deepen and widen and soften. The Buddhist image is like that uh, permeating the vibration, the energetic sense of the body. And remember, it's not that the body all of a sudden has lost its aches and pains. You know, if you have an older body or an injured body, things aren't magically different. But what's really profoundly changed is the mind that knows the body, the mind that is sensitive to the body, is in no way in conflict with the body. It's not afraid of the body. It's not afraid of being intimate with the body. In the same way, I'm, you know, I'm looking at Shannon, you know, like when one of your kids is having a hard day, sometimes, you know, when a good friend or a child is experiencing some real suffering, it can scare us. We're afraid that we might not be able to help them. But sometimes we're totally not afraid to meet a friend's suffering or a child's suffering. We can really hold it. We're not repressing we're not trying to make it go away because it makes us uncomfortable. And then we can be a real friend or parent to that child because we're not afraid of their suffering. 
And that's a little bit what's happening with the mind that's knowing the body. It's not that our body becomes perfect. You know, if we've been stressed for 64 years, you know, in all the little and big ways I've been tight for that many years, there's some, in any moment now, there's going to be some reverberations of having held tension in the way that this body's held tension over all those years. So when I'm really there with the body, it would be a lie to say that, oh no, boy, the body feels great. But we can pay attention not to the specific characteristics of the sensations in the body, but we can pay attention to this harmonizing of the mind and body, the mind that's not afraid, the, not, the mind that's willing to show up. And we do this too. You know, a lot of times we misunderstand metta, like the chant we did at the beginning of the program this morning. So going back to that example of you being with a good friend who's in a really difficult place or with a child. And, uh, you know, this it kind of relates to like whether we would use the word compassion or empathy like sometimes when we're empathetic and, you know, different people use these words slightly differently, it's sort of like I'm sympathetically vibrating with the hurt or the pain that that person has. And then that may not be that useful. Like sometimes we're really sensitive to another person, their difficulty, and we are empathizing with them. But it can get in the way of being a good friend. Because in a way, we're, it's, it's triggering all our own fear and maybe our own trauma that resides in a similar way with what's going on with our friend. And we can't really be in that nimble, creative, useful place in holding what's going on for that other person. So compassion in the deeper sense is different than just that pure sensitivity where I'm just sensing what's going on with you and it's like, oh, you're in a difficult place and it's triggering me because I know what it's like to be in that difficult space and I'm afraid of it. So then I'm not helpful. I'm basically modeling reactivity for you. You don't need someone to model reactivity. You need someone to model non-fear because when the mind isn't afraid, it sees more options for how it might show up and respond. When we're afraid, you know, when we're hurting, we tend to want to strike back either at ourselves or at some something or someone. That's what we do when we're hurting. It's just instinct. It's like goes with the territory of aversion and pain. So what we need to do is we need to recognize the importance of that healing pleasure. And it begins with this, like understanding the pleasure of harmonizing, of being open, of being present. And what gives us the confidence to be present to a world that is uncertain and insecure and scary and beautiful and all over the place 
know, the 10,000 joys and sorrows, what gives us immunity from being pushed around by experience is for the heart to be established in the pleasure of that presence, the unity, the not being fragmented, not being pushed around. So the more that we move through life with that stability, the pleasure of that stability, the pleasure of balance, the pleasure of non-reactivity, the pleasure of knowing that I can't really rely on anything. So, you know, like when you're in a really sticky place with your partner or with a good friend and it's really a painful argument or discussion you're having, if you're in that discussion argument as if your total life depends on you winning, you're going to be not very effective in the conversation. But if you have a lot of space, a lot of balance, a lot of a sense of this is not under my control and that's okay. Like my well-being essentially isn't dependent on how this plays out. Well, we're going to be so much more skillful navigating that difficult conversation with a partner, a friend, a child. Like, I want, you know, of course I want you to love me. I want us to be happy together. But I'm, I'm not going to be dependent on that because I know I can't be dependent on that. I can't, I can't have expectations about that. Because sometimes you're not going to love me. You know? It can be shocking for those of us who didn't have kids when we hear our friends who have children say, yeah, and then the child said, I don't love you. <laughs> it's like, you can't say that. <laughs> oh, yes, you can, right? Because there's real power and things like that. And if anything can happen, it will happen, right? Because that's the world we live in. We live in a world where things that can happen, happen. Everything can happen. Everything we can imagine can happen and does eventually happen, right? That's the world we live in. And uh, so this whole path of this joy of renunciation, it's like this first move, we think of it so simplistically, like I'm just trying to cut off my discursive thinking. I'm just going to bring my attention to the meditation object and suppress my worrying mind, my planning mind, my whatever. But actually more important than that attitude is I'm going to rediscover once again the pleasure of putting everything down. And that will help me learn how to pick everything up. So remember, putting everything down like this initial joy of seclusion, it isn't about giving up on the world. It's about learning how to be in the world with relationship, with responsibility. We don't really know how to be a good friend, a good human being, unless we know how to put it all down. Really, there's no way to be a lover and be dependent on the relationship. It just doesn't work. Try being a parent 
and being dependent on doing it right. Right? The fear of doing it wrong will ruin it. Right? If nothing else, it will exhaust you, and then you won't be a good parent because you're exhausted. And we all kind of know this, you know. People who play golf know you can't like hold your club and really want to hit it well. Because it doesn't that's not how it works. And you can just like whatever it is, tennis, golf, raising children, having a lover, taking care of your body, whatever it is that we're doing, meditating too. Like even we learn it just like how we abandon distraction. Being fierce about abandoning distraction is itself a distraction. It gets in the way. That's why I said in the guided meditation, it's so much more about learning how to be interested in something simple than it is about this kind of more macho image we might have of like, bravely eliminating the distractions, you know, as some superhero. And we'll keep coming back to this, but, you know, for homework this week, and if you stay for the conversation in a couple minutes, um, just really getting interested in how you're finding in your daily life and in your sitting practice, how are you accessing and building confidence in this inner joy of renunciation of simplicity, of seclusion, and also moving like joy, that experience of joy, is that the initial learning of what joy is, is those places in your life where you're not pretending to be in control. You know, when we were kids and we just spun around and around, you know, maybe holding three other kids' hands and we just sort of, and what made those moments so joyful is we lost control a little bit, you know, or you're just spinning by yourself and you lose a little, and what, it's both scary, but there's some real joy. And if you look, if you just look at the little places where there's a little joy, it's often related where you're willingly abandoning the need for control. Like when you're laughing hysterically with a friend, you know, and you let go of the need to present yourself in a good way, right? You don't. It doesn't bother you that you're slobbering or whatever you're doing, <laughs> doing that sort of weird laugh you do when you you're not in control. And uh, and just start connecting the dots. Like, what am I learning about joy, settling, and joy that is trustworthy, that will be helpful in navigating this life of mine. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.